Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hola, socios. Hola, equipo. My name is Neil. I'm Liam. This is John Nurnberger from Kansas City, Missouri, USA. Maury Field near Brisbane in Queensland. Edinburgh, Barcelona. And I'm a socio. I'm a socio. I am a socio of The Big Interview. Hi, my name's Neil. I'm a socio of The Big Interview from Maury Field near Brisbane in Queensland. My favourite episode of the last season was the one with Sir Les Ferdinand. I never realised that he'd actually played in Turkey at the start of his career. Every time I listen to an episode, I always learn something new. Keep up the good work. Thanks. Hi there, it's Graham Hunter. Welcome to The Big Interview. If perchance this happens to be your debut then welcome to the podcast series that's had millions of listens, dozens of interviews with top-class footballers and managers, and which is clinically proven, yes, we can prove it, to help your commute and make your dog walking more enjoyable. In this, the first of a two-parter, I speak to James Milner. Why? Well, I was absolutely sure that James Milner hasn't simply been a pretty extraordinary footballer across half a dozen clubs, but somebody who would be as impressive in person as he is on the pitch, somebody who I knew is dedicated to doing special things away from his footballing time. But above and beyond that, he's a footballer whose craft, whose hard work, whose power, whose sheer naked competitiveness I've always admired. In this episode, he talks about the apprenticeship at Leeds, which served him so well, a great Anfield night against Dortmund, and James steadfastly refuses, under pretty stern interrogation, to give me any inside snout on his penalty technique. Thanks to everybody at Liverpool, and also to Matthew Buck for helping set this up. Now, walk that dog, muscle your way to the best part of the train, and enjoy. Looking out the window, it's like the start to an episode of The Simpsons because the brutal grey scudding clouds have been replaced by gorgeous sky blue. And a little clue to our guest is uh, we saw uh, young Moreno um, coming out the training ground door, huddled up and shivering and really looking unhappy because when we came in, it was spitting poisonously cold rain. But this is the life of a footballer, James Milner, because you have to train in all conditions and um, you're just back from a, a little bit of a break. 
How was training for you this morning? Cold and wet anyway, but like we Brits don't feel it. Is that right? Yeah, it wasn't too bad to be fair this morning. It was just a short one, which we normally do. And then we have a second session this afternoon, which is a lot harder, but... It's colder from where, where I've been lucky enough to be last week. And, did you take some time yeah, off? Yeah, took did a you? Time, time away as well. Been in Dubai, so I watched a bit of golf. and um... You and Messi and Pogba. And... <laughs> the whole world goes to Dubai, really? Seriously? Well, this time of year, it's perfect. Because obviously, nice? everywhere else, it's, it's, the weather's amazing. It's 32 degrees, so obviously makes a training this morning a tiny bit colder than what it was just because obviously it's so warm out out there but it wasn't cold in terms of November December standards at Norwood. Now last time we were in this room it was with Andrew Robertson. Smashing interview, really funny guy, hell of a footballer. Let's just work away what nationality in Scottish. Which is quite important as you'll admit. But as we finished that interview and he went out in popped Adam Lallana for a Spanish tutorial chatting away. Now, I have to link that to, you know, I, I love reading Henry Winton. You obviously quite enjoyed chatting to him back in May in Marbella. And you talked about chatting away to your kids in Spanish. And I've seen you also chatting about the fact about being out um, with a Spanish mate in Spain, teetotaling at until half seven in the morning and going out and playing golf and whatever. What's the Spanish thing with you? Um, I don't know, really. I just always wanted to learn another language, really, and... Um, we did French and German at school. I did five years of German and can't remember much, too much of it. Uh, it'd be nice to do the Spanish, but um, go on holiday to Spain, a lot of a place out there, and just thought it'd be good to... I always thought it was very impressive when I saw people speaking a couple of languages and things like that, so I just thought I'd give it a go, really, and had a teacher and, and learnt from there, and then um, obviously want the kids to speak Spanish. How was it to begin with? Because it's so different. Like, if yeah, anybody hasn't studied German, yeah. German is angular and it's got odd rules mm. and whatever. Whereas Spanish, not everybody can get into it, but it's got a completely different flow. And Yeah, I think the, the, the start bit, I started on, on the computer and stuff like that mm. and doing the basics and colours and numbers and stuff like that. And I think, obviously, once you want to get better, it's best to get a teacher and you speak in it. But I think the first part isn't too bad. There's a lot of words which sound similar and mm -hmm. things like that. You can guess at the odd word once you get the feel of it. But I think once you then you get into your verbs and, and your different <laughs> tenses, the four million tenses you have, and that's when it gets tricky. And But you just have to stick with it, I suppose, and obviously not be too embarrassed um, when that's you make mistakes. Because as Brits, we're, I don't know if we're taught to be embarrassed or we shy away from anything that, where we might look stupid because I think we like to feel, I don't know, either dominant or forceful, but like, one of the things, thankfully, I've got is I don't mind appearing a little bit stupid or making an arse <laughs> of myself. So I just lunge into conversations, even today, 18 years after moving to Spain, where I'm not quite sure what I'm saying or how I'm going to get there, but just with force of motion, yeah. you get your message across. I think if it's not perfect, people understand you. I think learning it at Man City, and I was sat on a table on the, on the bus with um, Joe Hart, and I had Zabaleta and David Silver opposite me, so I used to speak to them, practice with them. I had Jolly and Lescott listening every now and then and hammering me saying I'm ruining the Spanish language with my Yorkshire accent and, and things like that. So when you get in that banter from the start, pretty much that probably helps you. You've, you've, it's funny how these conversations go, which is why we always at least try to not make it quite an interview, more of a chat if, yeah, yeah. if the player's up for it. Yeah, yeah. You've just named two of our big interview guests in that Zaba did us at, at Manchester City in his last season, and I'd known him a little bit in uh, Barcelona, we played for Espanyol, and his sort of ferociously competitive nature and his ability to chat about the first appearance of Leo Messi in the dressing room at, I think, the Olympics, the first time that Zaba met him, the Beijing, Beijing Olympics, this, this quiet kid who came in and then just ran everything. 
Jabba was fantastic. And then it's only very recently that we, we met Julian. And flipping heck, what an impressive character. What, what, what a bright mind. I mean, maybe you don't want to go and take agreeing with me, but I'm saying it right out there because he struck us as being a really extraordinary, interesting, articulate, convincing man who's doing a job at City now where it's not quite pastoral care, but you're trying to make sure that people don't go off track. Seemed to me to be a brilliant way to earn a living. He's, he's perfect at that as well. I get on well with Jolien, um, really well. And um, I think going through what he did in his career and having bad injury early on and his attitude to get through that and have the career he did and every night on the game ready icing his knee and having that attitude to do that. He's working the gym always, extra bits on his own. Me and Joel used to have many a convo in the in the dressing room at Sailor. We were normally one of the last couple once we'd been in the gym there and talk about all sorts. Um, he was the first person I told that my wife was pregnant before. He didn't tell anyone because needed to help. Who do we go to? Things like that. So I'm quite close with Joel and he's perfect for that role. His attitude is fantastic. Um, a very good player, great defender as mm. well. And, you know, probably didn't get the credit for... Um, what he deserved, in my opinion, on the ball. Sometimes he looked a bit uncomfortable and stuff like that, but he was always in control of what he was doing and really, really good player and, and, and probably underrated throughout his career, I thought. Yeah, and I listened to him now. He talked about the way in which he'd had a mentor um, and that it was fortunate for him at Wolves that somebody took him aside and appeared to be battering him verbally and physically, but in fact was teaching him because he stood out. And that, uh, you know, we've, we've come through, a, in, during your career, we've come through a huge spectrum of how footballers, young footballers are treated because now, and, and it's a common theme of this interview um, podcast, that maybe people even a, a bit older than you, closer to my age, are saying, well, in my day, it was brutal, you'd be jailed for it. It's just unacceptable, except it made me, I miss it. Football today misses mm -hmm. it. Maybe the blend of um, that hardness that young players used to have to face that either made you or broke you, Instead of saying like footballers at young age need to be paid huge sums and, and treated like gods, maybe that, that middle path is people like Julian or departments like Julian across elite clubs saying, we're going to watch you, we're going to study you, we're going to help you, we're going to guide you. There are points at which you're on your own. points where you've got to prove yourself, you've got to be tough, you've got to grow up, but we're going to try and make sure you don't fall off unnecessarily. Is that... Yeah, I think it has changed a lot since, since I started. And like you say, that hard, hard school gear getting cut up and lights off in the youth team dressing room and, and players coming in and causing all sorts of carnage, you know, car tyres getting let down and all, there was like a daily sort of thing and now you don't really get any of that. So, you know, I think there's examples of taking that to the extreme back then, but, you know, have we gone too far the other way now? I think, um, you know, young players cleaning boots and, and putting the cones out, collecting the balls in, that was a big part of my education and one that I think stands a place in good stead now, earning the right to be in that dressing room, you're on that first team bus the first time, you're, you're getting the tees in for the, for the lads on the bus. You're, I, I mean, I, I played probably 20-odd games at Leeds before I was allowed to get on the bus after the game, otherwise I was helping, you know, picking up the kit. I'd, I'd played the game, I'd score a goal, but now you're still picking up the kit, helping the skips to the bus. And then one day the kit, kit man said to me, go on, on you get on the bus, and you felt... You're buzzing straight away there. You felt like that's another step again. I've earned it. You're always earning that right, getting yeah. in the dressing room, being yeah. with the first team, bits like that. So I, I think that's important and something which which it, we, we don't do here, but obviously we're at different locations to, to the youth team as well. So some clubs still do it, I've heard, but mm -hmm. I think that's important and it's like in any any job you do, you have to earn the right to be there and you don't go in the first 
um, day of any job if you're working at a newspaper and start no. doing the stories and things like that. No, I think she'd come too easily in life. No, exactly. And I think you appreciate it more and you understand that, that role, really, I think, and, and, that, and that journey you take. I'm genuinely um, pretty enthused by the fact, you know, we, we do, it might not appear it in this chat, but we do a little bit of backwards reading just to see a little bit of things you've done and said. Now, I think it's right that at Ellen Road you were a ball boy at one stage. Yeah, we used to. That, that was part of what happened when you were in the academy. From I was at Leeds from 10-11, started ball boy in maybe 12, 13 on a match day. And the theory was to get used to the crowd, be around the pitch, um, things like that. And even stupid little things like game management. The guy used to say, take your time if you're winning. And something that drives me insane now, but it's part of it. Well, for some of the people, if, if it's oh, another stadium yeah, and they won't give you the ball mad, back, yeah. drives you nuts. Yeah, of course it does, yeah. Can you go back and, and think about those days, that experience, the, the, the noise, what was said? Like you say, if you were told just to say, OK, you can take a minute or two here, or if we're losing, that ball's got to be back instantly. I remember the jobs we had. Like You had to do the Champions League games, you had to do the, the flag in the middle of the pitch, and that I didn't do that. I used to collect the balls in from the warm-ups if the keepers had them, get the balls in and then run round the side for the start. The one game that stands out for me is uh, AC Milan at Ellen Road and we scored last minute and, and it was absolutely bouncing it down the whole game, absolutely drenched. Where are you? Where are you in that Halfway moment? line, always halfway line in front of the family stand and mum and dad had a, uh, oh, we had two tickets, pretty much level with that, halfway up the family stand, so I could always turn around like if we scored, see them, yeah, quite high, <laughs> but it was absolutely bouncing it down and, and it was at the main stand end and, and Bowie scored and Dida dropped it through his legs last minute, I think it was our last few minutes and... I think um, it was 89, yeah. Yeah, something like that. And, because uh, people... The whole place erupted, but it was just one of those, you know, absolutely dripping wet through. It was always a fight to get a box. Like, now you see all the ball boys on nice boxes or, like, little seats and stuff like that. There was none of that. There was, like, the stewards' ones. And if you were lucky, there was a spare one. And you got one. If not, you were sat on the floor. And... Dida was, a, for those who don't remember, a big Brazilian who played internationally for a long time and stuck at Milan for a long time. And I'd have said might have been in goal for Milan the night of the Liverpool victory. That's my memory that he was in Istanbul. And therefore, like, but that, to be on the, not just a ball, but you kind of just one step away from being on the pitch that night, it must have felt like. Yeah, I mean, that was, that was part of it, was to get used to the, the atmosphere and the ground and, and those sorts of nights, but also, I think, to that step again, being in front of that crowd and, and being part of, you felt a bit more of a part of it than you would be if you're just in the stand watching the game, for sure. Of course. Um, I'm not intimidated, because some boys, 11, 12, 13, 14, c c might find that Yeah, they have been a bit older at that point as well, but yeah, it was. And um, I mean, some great things, like just being in the dress, like in the room where the ball boys was around the tunnel, and you can see the players walking through. I remember we played, I think Wimbledon or something. Sam Amman was, uh, was chairman, chairman of the away team, and he'd come down and he pulled out the biggest wad of cash I've ever seen in my life and just started giving it out to lads, say, oh, I'll go get yourself a hamburger or whatever and just stuff like that. It was like unbelievable. Was, you, yeah, just you've never seen stories. that, never thought yeah, that Yeah, exactly. Happen. And it was just little things like that. It was just like... For me, albeit that football's now got very, very corporate, very sponsor-driven, very expensive, very, you can make people wealthy. It, it, to me, it's full of little jumble sale experiences, mad little things that you remember probably. I remember sitting and um, chatting with Darren Fletcher and Darren's like abiding memory that he says he'll never lose all his life. He's been taken like, by his dad or his uncle to Parkhead and the smell of the, the hamburger vans and the noise of the generator behind the van as it's drumming away. 
And for me, being a journalist as a, as a youngster and being invited into the manager's office for whiskey. So now, like, it's hard enough to talk to footballers and managers. But in those days, he was like, right, everybody's at the game, come into the office afterwards. Not just the opposition manager, but the journals. I feel that's a football that, or elements like that, that I don't want to lose at all if possible. Yeah, I always remember the, the smell of the DP. However, when we used to, uh, Leeds were away from our would sometimes go watch Geisley play and the smell, smell of that as the players run out of the DP and stuff. That was the smell that always comes back to me and the, the cup of Bovril at Geisley, that was... Yeah, I'm, I'm going to make a sad admission now. That deep heat smell, like if, if I was in a team where I didn't think I was good enough as a kid and I smelled deep heat, the fear in my stomach. <laughs> and even you mentioning it now, because you're like, oh, fuck, that means match time, means like if you're not up to it today, you're going to hear all about it. And so if, if I smell that now, it's still... Yeah, uh, that or when we put it in the... Uh, <laughs> Doc's cycling shorts because he was cycling at a training. Um, <laughs> they're the two memories I was. See, football is changing for the worst <laughs> if that doesn't happen anymore. Yeah, exactly. Car tires I can let go, but Doctor Shorts, like, it's got to be full of liniment. Yeah, Absolutely yeah. sure. We watched him cycle out at training. <laughs> Turn around as he got to end up drive and come back. Good fun. I've done, I've done, my, I've done my research. So you were that night, as they say in um, Dad's Army, you have been watching Nigel Martin, Gary Kelly, Ian Hart, Danny Mills. Dominic Matteo, uh, Michael Dubry, Ollie Dacour, Lee Boyer, Eric Baca, Michael Bridges, the mighty Alan Smith, manager David O'Leary, and um, Dida, Thomas Helvig, Paolo Maldini. The name rings a, rings a bell. Costa Curta, Jose Antonio Shamot, tough defender. Uh, Francisco Coco ended up at Barcelona for Dimitri Albertino in the legends of modern Italian football. Junti, uh, uh, Gullian Pietro. Shevchenko, Bierhoff. I mean, absolutely remarkable. But the fact that you had their measure um, fitted in with that season that you were watching the team that you loved, that's, that's, I suppose, your team to this day, playing Besiktas, playing Barcelona, playing Real Madrid, winning... OK, I guess you didn't go to Rome to see the, the, the Lazio victory. Did you ever? Did you travel much with Leeds? Never. No. Was what that was a, an, a, a cost thing or...? Um, it was just something. Uh, we went to Wembley. Got to Wembley. Went to the Carling. Well, Carling Cup final. What was it? Coca Cola Cup final. Then when Leeds lost to Villa, three uh, 0 Unfortunately, mm-hmm. went to watch Geisley at Wembley in the uh, FA Vars or something. Like that. They lost as well, so I didn't have a good record as a fan at Wembley. Went mm. to watch Leeds in the playoff final, um, lost again. So my record as a fan at Wembley isn't great. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Gary Mack, we once had a, a big interview with Gary Mack, and he, he used this phrase about when the town is behind you. He talked about like that championship winning season under Wilkinson, and he talked about the, the special feeling in that city when everybody believes and everybody's on it and the power of that. And for a man of his football gifts, because he really is a gifted footballer, and a successful man um, here as well as at Leeds, 
to talk about the impact of fan power and the city being behind you and a one-club city as well. Are these teams you, you recognise? Yeah, I think so. I think um, I remember Leeds winning the title. I was on the young, I was probably five. Um, watched the videos over and over as I was growing up. My dad jumping around the living room, women's his arms saying, uh, uh, don't forget this, it might not happen again in your lifetime. And at that age, you're like, and it, it might be right, but hopefully not. But yeah, I think when they're in the Champions League that year, just the momentum and, you know, on paper, you look at the, the team, some very good players and they're probably an unknown quantity around Europe, you know, like you say, some of the teams they played, that was the year where there was two groups in the Champions League, That's I think. Right. And like you say, you play Barcelona, Real Madrid, uh, Milan, Deportivo um, in the quarterfinal. Yeah. So to beat the teams they did, it was just that momentum. And I think they were a very good team, but it was the momentum of this, the side, people playing well. Lee Bowyer was incredible, goal scoring midfielder. Uh, did Alan Smith get a hat trick at Anderlecht? I'm not sure if he got. He scored a few at Anderlecht. I remember that was another wet night away, and it's a four-one away. Isn't yeah, it? and that's obviously not an easy place to go either. So you look at the the teams that the, the beat uh, and played. Um, it was like you say that momentum and the belief and and the the noise and similar sort of thing. You know, at, at Liverpool as well. Once you know the the the, the crowd and and that bus bus journey into Anfield when when those European nights and things like that. It's the same sort of thing again and that wave and the two European runs we've had in the Europa and, and the Champions League, that again was a similar sort of feeling, that wave and that momentum and, and the fans having a massive part of that run. Gee, I know you're not just saying that, but <clears throat> because we fans would like to feel that there's that something of the passion and noise, noise that we generate, in my case for Aberdeen, that it reaches sometimes or the, and often players in this series will say, you know, I'm never intimidated, but sometimes if the legs are going or if we know we're up against it, then a bit... In modern uh, British football, more than I think when I was growing up, that sometimes that journey to the stadium, particularly in this city, has become a bit mythical. But describe it a little bit. And also, I think we're used to professional footballers now saying, well, I'm all about shutting it out or I'm all about focus, or we've got big headphones on with mad, stupid music in it. What do you notice, and why do you notice that trip to the stadium? I think on the way to the ground, um, obviously some people do everything, but it's different, some lads are listening to music, some of us like might be playing a game, or whatever, we went through a phase of playing a, a golf game on our phones together, just to get, you know, the competitive juices flowing, a bit of banter, and, you know, you don't want to just sit there doing nothing, I don't want, anyway, and obviously looking out of the the wind and stuff like that and you get to the ground and it stops and you see the, 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 the lines of people and people on shoulders singing songs, flares going off and the noise um, and like the, a couple of times we've done it just you know you can't see out of the windows then that the smoke's there and, and the smoke's actually coming onto the bus a bit and yeah it's just it's people banging on the bus it's that atmosphere before you even get there it's like you're you're in the 88th minute and you're winning and it's before you even started and um, the other time we had that was semi-final with Newcastle at, at Cardiff um, against United and I think at Cardiff you're coming two separate ways so that was one our way in was just black and white black shirts and white. all the way people hanging off lampposts stuff like that and it's amazing yeah it's, you can only experience that the only other thing you can compare it to really is a, a parade you know when you've won a trophy yeah. really and that's the only other thing I think once you're on the pitch, it's different. You can hear the background noise, you know, it's never going to 
or I can only speak personally, it doesn't affect you or anything like that. If you're away from home and it's hostile, I love that. That's what you want. That's exactly what you want to play in as a player. Because it gees you up. Yeah, for sure. And you want to shut them up. And there's nothing better than that silence when you score an away goal. And there's that moment where the ball hits the back of the net and it's dead silence even for the away fans. And then the roar goes up. And, you know, it normally sounds like a distant roar because it's the away fans and it many. And I don't think it'd ever affect me. And you want the. Those, but there's times in the game it normally coincides when the team's playing well. You get the roar, every press, every tackle, someone wins a tackle or a header, and as that roar goes up, you don't get that generally on a game where you're comfortably winning or it's even a Saturday morning and it's not a so called big game. Mm-hmm. You don't get that for a tackle or a header or those little things, you'll get it for a goal, but that's about it, and that's the difference. And in the big games, and when the team's playing well, you know, in the games which isn't a, a so called big game, it's for the team to lift the crowd by their performance as well. Isn't that a bit magical that that, that connection can happen between 40,000, 50,000 people who they're cordoned off, they're up there, you're down there, you're doing a job, but sometimes it all just goes together. Out. Yeah, for sure. That's and kind I think of magical. Yeah, I think so, because that's you know them doing their so-called job or enjoying themselves, but it's down for us to put in that performance and make them believe as well. And One of the best nights at Anfield that I think as well, everyone will say, the city and things like that, but... And the Dortmund game, yeah, it was just one of those where, you know, we looked down and out, there's no way coming back, they're a very, very good team and then you get one or the odd goal and then you get a bit of belief in the ground and then the next and then obviously the way we scored the last goal, cop end and, and the old roof comes off and it is just... What stage did you kind of know? Because they, you could see the balance, because they scored two early goals, didn't mm. they? To go, I think, maybe 3-1 up on Ag. So very similar to United and Turin in '99, except for away and a different atmosphere. But like you could see something was happening. Was that Tuchel's Dortmund? Yeah, I think it was. I think wasn't so, it? Yeah. yeah. I saw that night when I was watching it, and I felt that I'd been seeing a, a difference in the power and the energy of how Liverpool were playing. And on that night, I felt the balance is is turning, or it's the way it looked. But often, as a spectator, you can be wrong. Did you feel it? Where I think once we it? got that goal second half, was it Philly who scored one and we needed a couple more from that point? Once you got the first one, you think there might be a chance here. And I think that season, we were playing in sort of bursts, if you like. We'd have a couple of games where we played really well, the tempo was really high, we had the pressing after a tee, our attacking play was good, might concede the odd goal, but then we'd have a couple of games where... It was like a completely different team. And I think you can see how we've improved since then, that consistency is there. And if you watch us nine times out of ten, you know it's Liverpool playing the way we play and stuff like that. Absolutely. But I think at that moment in time, we weren't quite there. I think it was the Gaffer's first season, wasn't it? So he'd only been there four months at that point, something like that. Um, but to get that goal second half and then the fans believing again and you get that roar. And from that moment on, it's just about digging in. I think we got one more and then obviously the last goal was... Yeah, I mean, it was a, a risky one, really, to go short. Studgard, Studgard made that run and... Um, Sorry? Yeah. Studge? Sturridge. OK, OK, Studge is good. Because you set up two that night. You set up... You shovel it to Coutinho for, for the 3-2 goal. Yeah. And then um, you set up Lovren. Yeah, that was the last one. So I had a free kick around the halfway line, I think, and um, was just going to knock it in, and Studge made a run along the line and knocked it down the line short to him. Um, and he had his back to play, so I got it back to me and dinked it back past. Really, it was it was good because we worked on that. If you, if it's if it's 
not the short free kick, but when you get to the byline on a second phase on a free kick, pull off back post. So we've done it sort of in training when something comes off like that. But the manager since then's always said, you know, I always look for the short ones, like one of our biggest free kicks or set players we've had since he's been at the club and we went short. And maybe it's something we could do a bit more, but... You know, it's, it's one of those things. If I knock it short to Studge and he can't find a way to get it back to me, or he's too, and they run down to the end, it's game over. And everyone's like, why didn't you put it in the box? And it's just one of those things. But why we love football? But, really. Yeah, don't, ways, don't you love risk? Because of course, yeah, and it's one one of those. If, if that's my job in that situation, taking the free kick and the responsibility to take, I suppose. But if I knock it short and it gets cut out and the game's over, everyone's why didn't you put it in the box? But as it turns out. It was a good decision. So, as many times as that comes off, you know, you could probably do it another eight or nine times, and it wouldn't work like that. You don't score on people, so why don't you put it in the box? But, but how many times have you had that build to pay in your career, where really big split-second decisions have not gone well, and you've had to carry the can? Not not too often. Not loads and loads, but hopefully that's why you you try and learn from mistakes and things like that. And 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 as a set piece taker or poor deliveries or penalty takers as well, missing penalties, it's part and parcel of the job. Unfortunately, you have to I believe you have to be um, willing to miss. Really, you have yeah. to be prepared to miss a penalty to take it, and and have the confidence in yourself that you've practiced enough and and know what you're going to do. But. Um, you know, some people won't want to take penalties because of that fear of missing, and that's mm -hmm. why they don't want to take instead of thinking about the other side. But you know, I think I've been around long enough and taking that responsibility—that's all part of it, really. Didn't you play and score in that mad under twenty-one shootout? Yes, took twice actually. We we, we played. Um, it was Holland, wasn't it? And yeah. um, I'd scored my first one. Mark Noble stood next to me in line. He'd scored his, and it got to about seven or eight, and I was like. No, because we might have to take again here. Because obviously, in a shootout, it's not nice. It's horrible sort of thing to do, even when you're taking it. Nobody enjoys really taking penalties in a shootout. Honestly, Oof, uh, would you? It's, it's, yeah. It's 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 uh, no win situation as a player, isn't it? Really, as a keeper, you can be the hero. If you miss a penalty, you're the villain. And if you score, you're expected to score. So you'll always take that responsibility and I'm going to be the guy to score the goal, but I wouldn't have said there's many people who enjoy the actual, oh, yes, we've got a penalties here. Well, I, I, OK, I'll grant you, um, I know PK quite well, and in the past he's told me that during the World Cup final against Holland again, he said that my legs were actually shaking and I was crapping myself that we were going to penalties. Please, God, not penalties. And then he has to does what he has to does. But, like, once the penalties are there... Yeah, for sure, when you're putting it on the spot and you're up there and I'm going to score this, that's that's not the point. But I think if you ask many players, would they enjoy a shootout? No one enjoy it, because even if you don't do your job, like that was me and Nobles who stood there and we've taken us penalty scored, that relief, yeah, we've, we've scored, but then your mates have still got to do their job and if they miss, you still feel as bad as you would if you missed it and you've still lost, so... There's an element of it not being in your control. If you're playing a game in 90 minutes, you can run and make that tackle, you can run and make that pass, you can make the run into the box, you can affect it. Penalty shootout, I'm still on the line on the halfway line. Once I've scored my penalty or taken my penalty or missed my penalty, there's nothing else I can do at that point. So that feeling that been out of your control. Yeah, exactly, is, which is, is like there's nothing worse than being left out of the team or being suspended or injured and watching your team play. It's a horrific feeling because you can't do anything for your teammates. Without telling too much to keepers, what kind of things are going through your mind at you know, elf meter, the Germans call it, 11 metres out. I just make my decision. Unless the keeper goes silly early, I make my decision and, and go with that. And if the keeper moves very early, then I might. So you don't look, or you kind of look? 
sort of, yeah. Have you got peripheral vision? Is that what... Yeah. So do you, do you need to look at the ball when you take it? Everyone's different, really. Yeah. Everyone's different. Am I into, am I into, am I into secret territory here a little bit? Yeah, I don't want to give too much away. <laughs> Everyone's different. Some players look at the ball. Okay, let's find a middle ground. Them. Let's find a middle ground. Yeah. Have you been watching Sergio Ramos recently? He's Panenka, Panenka, Panenka. So he's done two Panenkas um, building up to last weekend um, away to Celta Vigo. They've just got a new manager in. Panenka, the original Panenka, does an interview in Spain on the front page of the daily newspaper that morning is... Sergio Ramos could be the nearest thing to Panenka since Panenka says Panenka and it's a penalty and his last two penalties have been chipped and he goes up against the keeper chips him and the keeper can't help but go but as he's going down he's flapping at the air like a cat at a pigeon because going oh I knew I knew I knew I knew have you Panenka would you Panenka is that a verb I go down the, I go down the middle but I don't Necessarily think I pass, no, I pass it down the middle. So I've been down the middle a few times, but um, just pass it. I don't really see the need to dink it or panenka it. Or hello, hello, say. keep. Oh no, sorry for mentioning. <laughs> hello, hello, all keepers. Not all of this information has been true. You can't outguess him. Now I try and mix mine up. So if you looked at my record of penalties, you'd find them in both corners and down the middle. So. Is the most bittersweet penalty at? Um, Against Manchester United for Villa. Yeah, probably, yeah. Because that, that's yeah. red card all day long, yeah, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. And that's one memory you have. The early penalty should have been a red, wasn't. And then obviously it's a, a cup final, the pressure of taking a penalty, scored it. and Scored and it then, like, absolutely beautifully. Angled your run, put it exactly the way that it was supposed to go, and the keeper goes the other way. And when you look back on it, you kind of go, why did he go that way? Because I'm running. He'd have watched me. I'd taken a few in the in the games before, and they'd all been the other right side. Yeah, so that was why, really. So um, I'm sure he'd have done my, his homework and and gone with that. But then, you know, to be one 0 up anyway, you'd like to think that you can go on and win it. It didn't happen, but there is obviously that bitterness that if it it was a red card, really, if if the red card had been given, then. Thank you for joining us for season 2018-19. We've got huge creative plans for the months ahead, but we do need your help to make them happen. Please go right now to patreon.com forward slash Graham Hunter and become a social, become a paying member and get an extra big interview every month plus loads of bonus content. Last season, socios listened to nine exclusive big interviews including Rafa van der Vaart, Troy Deeney, Roberto Di Matteo and loads of me talking about football. The Premier League, the Champions League, Spanish football... I'm sure they enjoyed it and you will too. Support us, join us. Thank you.